Good morning. About nine or ten years ago at this point, uh, Christine and I were still in Wilmington, North Carolina. We went to school there. We were part of a church plant, helped plant a church down there. And uh, <clears throat> it came to the point where I was doing a little internship there. I was getting paid a little bit, but I was finishing my master's degree. The internship was coming to a close. It was a smaller church, and so I needed to get another job. And so the first thing I did was looking at other ministry opportunities, but nothing was really working out. And I didn't have like a lot of time to just kind of sit there and kind of wait for things. And so I started work looking just for a normal job anywhere. And uh, but I kid you not, probably applied to like over 30 places. I mean, places like Ashley Furniture Home Store, like all these places. And I couldn't get hired. And I think back to that now, like this would have been a great time for me to try to do that back then because then they'd be like paying me to go, right? Um, and I, I figured part of my problem was, you know, my resume says my master's and my undergrad degree is in religious studies to the average person. What does that mean? Uh, my best work experience was at a church. So they're like, well, you only work on Sundays, so do you even know what you're doing, right? I mean, so I'm like, this is not going out, going well for me. And then finally, I applied to a Verizon down there in Wilmington. This was, you know, right before we decided to move back here. So it worked out really well. And I went through like four interviews and then I was really frustrated because after the last interview, it had been a week and I hadn't heard anything like yes or no, but tell me something. And I remember one night being over at the pastor and his wife's house from the church we helped plant and then another couple from the church and I was frustrated and discouraged. And so I was explaining how I was still waiting to hear back. And I said something to the effect of, and the guy interviewing me, like he seemed totally disconnected. Like he didn't even care. The questions were kind of weird. He didn't even know, he didn't even know how to do his job. And the guy sitting next to me at the table after I said that comment then looks at me and says, well, I think I found the problem, <laughs> right? The problem was me. And it's like, as soon as I said that, I was like, yeah, that sounded like I was a jerk, right? It sounded like I was really arrogant. And I share that story because today, uh, as we continue through the study of the gospel of Mark, we're going to look at this idea or this question of, of what does it look like for you and I to approach God? Like, how should we actually do it in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to him? And we're going to find it's a little bit different than my attitude towards getting this job. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Mark chapter 7. Uh, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. If you don't have one, there's a black one around you. We'd love for you to read along with us. And if you do not own a Bible... You can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Um, if you're new with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the uh, book or one of the uh, books in the in the New Testament that's just about the life of Jesus. And so uh, we've been reading through. If you were here with us last week, the last thing we read was Jesus was confronted again by the Pharisees and the religious leaders because of the behavior of his disciples. And they're saying the disciples don't really honor God because they're not acting the way we want them to act. And of course, his challenge to them was at the end of the day, God is after your heart, not of these external actions that you can check off a box. And then he leaves where he was, which was in Galilee, a heavily Jewish area. And now he's going to go to a Gentile region, a non-Jewish area, where he's going to spend most of his time, most of his remaining time in the Gospel of Mark is outside in non-Jewish Gentile areas before he goes to Jerusalem and where he is ultimately killed. And so we'll pick up the story. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Here's what it says. It says, he got up, being Jesus, and departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. So again, Jesus here is leaving Jewish Gentile region of Galilee around the Sea of Galilee. He travels to Tyre, which is still a city today. It's in modern day Lebanon. Uh, this would have been about 35 miles away. Uh, and of course, as we read this, we're not really emotionally connected to the history. It just seems like interesting bit of information. Uh, but if you were an ancient Jew reading this, this would have caused uh, uneasiness in you because this Gentile area of Tyre and the area around it has a long history of antagoni uh, antagonism 
toward Israel. Uh, in fact, this was about, really about the border of where ancient Israel was with other nations. And so there was a lot of battles. There was a lot of fights. There was a lot of wars. Even the couple hundred years before Jesus and the couple hundred years after Jesus, there's historically, uh, you can see wars and battles that would go on between the Jews and the people living in that, in that area. And so you would read this and be like, why would he go there? Now, of course, as often is the case in Mark, we're not told why. Uh, we can probably assume that he likely left due to opposition, right? He's been trying to reach out to his own people, the Jews, and yet they continue to reject him. And so he leaves. And of course, we're also not told why Jesus desired secrecy, but we can also probably imagine, as we've been reading, that everywhere they go, people are after them. Him and his disciples cannot get away. So he likely wants to rest and also spend some time teaching his disciples. But of course, he has found out. His name has preceded him. People know that wherever this man goes, people are healed and lives are changed. And so he's found out. And then it says this, verse 25. So instead, right, instead of being by himself with his disciples, instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter, who had an unclean spirit, came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So he goes into this house. His name precedes him. This woman finds out, likely immediately finds where he is and wants to ask him for help. Now, to be fair here, of all the people that Jesus has healed so far and cared for it so far, even including some Gentiles that he has already healed, uh, this woman probably has the worst quote unquote resume for Jesus to actually help her. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, again, it's a woman approaching a man in public, which we've seen this happen before. But even what makes this even worse in ancient culture is a woman approaching a man from a different culture, a different ethnicity, a different background. And she, this is not a public place. She goes into the house. This would have been something that would be culturally not something you're supposed to do. But beyond that, uh, she's also where she's from. She is a Syrophoenician, which is an ancient bitter rival if you are a Jewish person. Uh, really, if, again, if you know the history, this is almost like when Jesus accepts Matthew, the tax collector, tax collector to come and follow him. He, she, in your mind, if you're an ancient Jew, even looks, makes Matthew look okay, right? You would assume that Jesus is not going to help her, right? Or that Jesus at least shouldn't. Now, here's the thing, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've read the Gospels and the Bible, you know, well, that Jesus does what he's not supposed to do, and he is willing to help everybody. And so you think you know how he's going to respond to her, but she's actually going to say something that you might not expect. Here's what he says, verse 27. He said to her, let the children be fed first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, you might be saying, I'm not exactly sure what Jesus means by that, but it doesn't sound nice, right? And no culture in, in any history does someone you want to be called a dog. This is not what you would expect. And you might even think that this is insulting. And you would be maybe partially collect. So, correct. So the question is, what's going on here? So Jesus, again, doesn't actually help her when, she asks, when he asks her to, but not only declines, but seems to do it in a way that's even wrong or even insulting. And so he responds with what really is kind of a short little parable that appears to be an insult, right? Especially, again, in an ancient culture where calling people dogs was derogatory. This was not a new thing. Many Jews would call Gentiles dogs. Many Gentiles would call Jews dog. And when you think of a dog, you're not supposed to think like a cute little, uh, you know, pet in your house. You would be thinking about a wild dog who was dirty, who gets in the way, who carries disease. Like you want nothing to do with them. 
And yet Jesus respond, ref, uh, refers to her as that. What's going on here? So here's what's happening. So to be fair, uh, Jesus, we don't see this in our English translations, but he uses a, a word for dog here that is not the normal word for a wild dog. He does actually use the word that would be better translated as puppy or a house pet, right? Now, this is significant, right? Because what she would not expect him to say this. She would not be at all surprised to hear a Jew calling her, because she's not a Jew, a, something like a dog, because this is what they did all the time. That would not be surprising to her. In fact, that probably wouldn't even be offensive, because she would assume that someone like him, who is this well-known Jewish leader to help someone like her, why would he do that? But yet, he does refer to her as something, something that would have been surprising to her. He essentially calls her like a puppy or a house pet, right? Again, the question is, in, in her mind, why would Jesus help her? She is not part of his people. He has clearly not come for her and her people. So why should he help her? And so Jesus responds here to, with a little bit of a parable. Really, what he's saying here, and as she's going to understand in a second, he's really kind of saying that there was a specific order to what he was supposed to do. First, he came to the Jewish people to show him that he is the fulfillment of all things. And then he's going to come for the Gentile people to welcome them into God's family. So regardless of whether they are ethnically Jewish or not, his purpose was to include everyone in God's family. But his primary mission first was to the Jews. And then after his resurrection, it was going to be to the whole world. So essentially what he's telling her is that there is an order to things and your time is not yet come. And then here's her reply in verse 28. She said, but she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs, and she of course is using the term that he uses, the house pets, the puppies, uh, under the table, eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. When she went back to her home, she had found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. So again, what's happening here is that her response is actually quite stunning. And it's stunning maybe different than how you and I would think. It's not stunning because she doesn't, what she doesn't do, what you and I might do in her situation, is she doesn't argue her rights. She doesn't say, well, you might be, it might be true that I'm not a Jew and I'm different, but I haven't actually wronged you. And, and here's all the reasons why my daughter is, you know, she's a young child. How can, she doesn't say all the reasons why he should still help her in spite of her circumstances, right? If we were in this similar situation and we were with Jesus, we might say, you're right. Like I don't deserve it, but still, let me give you all, all these reasons why you should still help me, even though I, I maybe don't deserve to be helped, right? Also, she doesn't even say Jesus is wrong. Right? She doesn't argue with him at all. She accepts uh, his judgment of the situation. Right? As, a, as a Gentile begging a Jew, she would not expect him to just help her to do whatever she wanted, but she still begs him out of his goodness. Now, one of the things culturally that we miss here is because we would assume, well, yes, the Jews in, the, in this area, the Syrophoenician people have a long history of fighting and infighting and racial hatred toward one another, but she hasn't done anything wrong. So why doesn't Jesus help her? Again, one of the things that's my, very different between our culture and an ancient, their ancient cultures, we're very individualistic, right? Even if somebody in your family does something very terrible, like maybe it's an embarrassment, embarrassment from you, but it doesn't necessarily keep you from buying a house or getting a job or any of those things, right? In these ancient collective cultures, even if you specifically haven't wronged somebody, if your people or your family or your tribe have, it's the same as if you had actually done it yourself. 
right? In the same way, if you actually wrong somebody, it's the same as the rest of your people having wronged somebody. It's very collectivistic. So again, it doesn't matter in this kind of concept that she might not have individually done anything wrong to Jesus. The problem is her people have. And so these ancient people would have assumed it's just like she had wronged the Jews or just like she herself had killed Jewish people. And so she accepts this, right? She understands the cultural dynamic that he doesn't have to help her, but she still begs him out of his, out of his goodness. And here's what's ironic here, that this is actually the first time in all of Mark that we've read so far that you see somebody understand and respond to a teaching or parable of Jesus without first being explained what it meant. So there's oftentimes so far where Jesus says something people don't fully understand, but then he'll tell his disciples privately here. She, is, she knows exactly what he's saying without having to be told, right? A Gentile Syrophoenician woman knows what's going on, right? Because here's what's happening. Again, in Jesus' parable here, children here is, is clearly referring to Israel. And the dog or the puppy in this scenario is, is this idea that, yes, even house pets are going to be fed, but they're not prioritized, right? The family is prioritized. The children are prioritized first. And of course, you'll take care of your pets, but they're not as important as your kids, but yet she still responds that even a house pet gets, doesn't have to wait for the crumbs. Like they may not get the entire meal right, right up front, but they don't have to wait to eat anything because the children will drop things on the floor and they can eat those things right away. And so Jesus here is amazed by her response. In Matthew's account of this story that Mark leaves out, he actually responds to her and says, your faith is great. And so again, what happens here is that she gets it when the disciples often don't. She, again, understands that as a Gentile, uh, Jesus's mission is not towards her and her people, but it's towards his own people. But if what she's essentially saying here is that if I have heard about, about what I've heard about you is true, then even your crumbs are enough to satisfy. And so I want to make two points here. The first thing I think is good for us to consider as we read a passage like this is this, right? What does it look like to seek God in humility over entitlement. Like, like this woman who understands she doesn't deserve it, but then doesn't, but, but still could like give her a list of reasons, but here's why you should still have compassion on me. What does it look like for you and me to seek God, not in humility over entitlement? Again, this woman doesn't argue with Jesus. Uh, she knows she does, doesn't deserve it, but she doesn't stop asking. Right? And instead of listing all of the reasons why God should still help her, or in this example, why Jesus should still help her, she recognizes that she doesn't deserve it, and her only chance is out of his grace. Right? There's nothing that she can say or do to, to convince or to show him that he, she actually deserves it. She knows that out of his grace, she doesn't, and so she responds in humility. Now, it kind of, it's not a perfect example, but it kind of makes me think of, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you didn't technically deserve something for what you did, but you kind of thought like, you know, you were entitled to something based on your action, even if you didn't technically deserve it. So let me give you an example. I have been uh, wronged and let down twice by Chick-fil-A, okay? <laughs> so let me tell you both of these examples. The first one I've mentioned a couple weeks ago because it was recent. January 1st of this year, Christina and I went to the mall, and she had a free milkshake coupon. 
Now, I get it. I've told this people, people this story like, well, you shouldn't have gone. You said at the mall. Like, I get the mall Chick-fil-A is not as good as like maybe the other Chick-fil-A's, but they still have to go through the same training. They still say my pleasure. Like, they should still know, right? And so we have this coupon. We give it to the cashier, and we say we want to whatever, some milkshake. And so she takes it, and it wasn't a paper one. It was like a card, like a plastic one that you have to scan. So she scans it, clearly says it expired because it expired December 31st. So not 12 hours after it expires, we try to use it. And she responds by saying, oh, I'm sorry, this, is, this has expired. Do you still want to pay for your milkshake? No, I don't want to pay for my milkshake. Like, technically, I don't deserve it, but you're Chick-fil-A, right? You're just supposed to. It's all these, and so I was, you know, let down, right? But that has nothing to do with what happened two years ago. So I won't tell you which one it was. It was one of them in Raleigh, but I won't throw them under the bus fully. But two years ago, Christine and I and the kids are leaving Chick-fil-A, and I find a phone on, uh, in the parking lot upside down. So I pick it up. I notice that it's locked. It's got a passcode on it. And so I was like, well, I could bring it back in Chick-fil-A, but the person who lost, I mean, they're not going to be able to call the person. And so the person who lost it is going to have to like, remember that they've lost it there. And then even if they go to Chick-fil-A to find it, if they talk to like a cashier who doesn't know that they have the phone, like they might ever find it again. So I was like, I'll take it home, see if I can contact the person. And if not, I'll just bring it to, you know, Verizon or T-Mobile or, you know, whatever the, the carrier was that had the phone. So I take it home, it's locked, but it was an iPhone. And so I open up the uh, emergency ID, the emergency contact. And uh, it was his wife's phone number was in there. So I called her and I texted her basically saying, hey, I found this phone. It was in this Chick-fil-A parking lot. You know, let me know how I can drop it off. Well, she calls or texts me back a couple hours later. And wouldn't you know, it was the owner of Chick-fil-A's phone. So I'm thinking, uh, listen, I was going to do the right thing regardless, right? But I'm like, I just saved this brother hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Like, I, I, surely there is going to be something for me, right? And so we coordinated. I was like, don't worry about it. I will come to your store tomorrow, and I will bring it to him. He didn't have to come to me, whatever, right? So I have my two, I have the kids with me. They were two and four at the time, so they were young, and we were going right at lunch. So I had to explain to them, like, I got to get you out of the car seat and all that stuff like that, um, and we're not going to actually eat anything. I just have to give this phone to him. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, but we might get a gift card, so we actually might be able to eat something, right, ever. So I go inside, and to my discouragement, he was, like, busy or something, so I give it to the cat, you know, some lady who's going to give it to him. And so we leave, but I'm thinking, they got my phone number, right? I've already talked to his wife. Like, clearly, they're going to, like, 15 bucks, 20, that's all I'm asking. The rest of the day, nothing. The day after that, Nothing. The day after that, nothing. I'm like, come on here, right? Like, again, technically, I do the right thing. You're not supposed to. But, like, I, I should have gotten something, right? I should have gotten something. And you know it, and I know it. And if you're watching, you know it, too. Um, anyway, I, saw, I say all that to say this. When it comes to God, right, even though we might say, yeah, I don't necessarily deserve his grace or deserve these things, I have done X, Y, and Z, so I at least should get something. Not simply based out of what your grace and your love but based off of what I have done, right? I deserve it in some small way, and yet that's not what this woman does. In fact, in quite opposite, uh, here is what this woman understands, right? That a crumb from the Lord's table is better than a seat anywhere else. Just a small piece of God's grace or his forgiveness or his love or his care or his redemption is better than anything that you can find anywhere else, you see, what is offensive about this story to us as modern readers is her lack of standing up for herself. She just accepts it, right? She accepts her position of need, 
right? And it's her humility, out of her humility, out of her arguing and listing the reasons why he should still help her. It's out of her humility that Jesus does for her what she asked, right? It's out of the abundance of his grace she does for her, or she gets from him what she desired from him and what she could not get anywhere else. As we've read in some of these other stories, there is no doubt that she has tried other things and other means and nothing has worked. But if she can just get a crumb of the grace of God himself, she knows something different could happen, right? If I could just get a crumb from the table of Chick-fil-A, it would make all the difference, right? What I've learned, okay, what I have learned is that Chick-fil-A might be the Lord's chicken, but it clearly ain't served by him, okay? Because, you know, it would have gotten some more grace. Now, enough about Chick-fil-A, again. The point here is that a crumb from the Lord's table is better than anything else. That we can beg and we can plead and we can say, here's all the reasons why God must do this for me. But out of humility and grace, just a taste of his grace can make all the difference. And that's what she experienced. And then we'll read this next section, starting in verse 31, of another Gentile in need of help and how Jesus responds. We'll pick up the story. Chapter 7, verse 31, it says this. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. Now, again, you and I aren't really uh, familiar with ancient Israel uh, geography. Basically, what, this per- what Mark is telling us is that he leaves one Gentile region and goes to another Gentile region, but he travels a very roundabout way that would have taken a lot more time. The question is why? Again, Mark doesn't tell us, but eventually he finds himself in another Gentile non-Jewish area. Again, people know who he is, and so he is brought by a group of people, a man who is deaf and can barely talk, and they beg Jesus to heal this man. Now, one thing that's significant to note, very easy to miss in our English translations, is that when it says that he has difficulty speaking, uh, this is the Greek word mogilalos. Now, this is significant because mogilalos is, a, is a, not the normal way that you would say someone has difficulty speaking. So the question is, why does Mark use this word? Well, he uses this word because there is only one other time that mogilalos is used in the entire Greek Bible. And that is in Isaiah chapter 35. And in Isaiah chapter 35, it's also a unique, not normal way to say someone can't speak. Here's what Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6 says. It'll be on the screen. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, which is mogilalos, which is how they've translated it here, the tongue of the mute, will sing for joy. Right, so what's happening here, the context of Isaiah chapter 35, is that Isaiah 35 is essentially the last chapter of the first section of the book of Isaiah, one of the longest books in the Hebrew Bible. And it follows a series of chapters where God is declaring judgment on places like Edom, Egypt, and Tyre. So the areas that Jesus is now in are the places that Isaiah says they are going to be judged because of their unfaithfulness to God. Now, Isaiah 34 also says that Israel and Jerusalem will also be judged because the people have also turned away from God. So it's this really gloomy outlook. But then Isaiah 35 shifts, and it's all about the redemption of those who trust in the Lord. That if you trust in the Lord, regardless of any of these areas that are going to be judged, you will experience his redemption. And then Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10 ends ends with this. Chapter 35 ends with verse 10. It says this, and the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. 
Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. So here's what Mark's doing. He's making this connection to Isaiah 35. It's talking about the judgment of God from people who go their own way, but yet in spite of their unfaithfulness, anybody who trusts in the Lord will experience something. Or put another way, that all people find their redemption in God through Jesus. That is what Mark is showing us. He's intentionally connecting Mark 7, the story of healing this man who cannot speak, with Isaiah 35 saying all these regions that you would assume as an ancient Jew are going to get what's coming to them. If even they, like you, trust in the Lord, they will experience redemption. Redemption. And so what does Mark show us? The Syrophoenician woman, a bitter enemy of the Jewish people, experienced it. And now this man, this Gentile himself, is also going to experience it. Again, Mark is showing us again here that Jesus is Lord, that he is the fulfillment of all things. You know, as a side note, it's, it's worth mentioning here that there are only 12 chapters in the entire New Testament, only 12, that do not either explicitly or implicitly uh, reference the Hebrew Bible in some way. So many times it's explicit, like quoting a verse or two. Other times it's implicit, like right here, where it's very using, it's using a unique word that matches with a unique word that, oh, by the way, this, the scenarios of those words being used also go together. Mark is clearly showing us that all people, in this case, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, in our case, whether you're a man or a woman, uh, whether you're your socioeconomic level, uh, how many followers you have online, how much money you've made, what you've done, what have done to you, that all people, you and me, find our redemption in God, not through us, but through this man named Jesus. And so here's what Jesus does. Verse 33, chapter 7, we'll see, we'll continue to read. It says this, so he, being Jesus, took him, the man who could not speak, away from the crowd and private. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. He touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said, Ephathatha, that is, be opened. Right now, here's what's interesting, right? We know, especially if you've been reading through Mark or just have any kind of cursory knowledge of Jesus and his miracles, that he does not have to perform any ritual to heal somebody right? Like, in fact, the story that we just saw, he wasn't even near the child and he healed her. So what's going on here? Again, Mark doesn't tell us, but it seems very likely that what's going on here is that Jesus is just showing extreme compassion for this man. That what he does is he takes them away from the spectacle of the crowd, and then he communicates the man who cannot speak and cannot hear what he's doing for him. Right? He touches him in the areas that he is going to heal him, so this man knows exactly what Jesus is going to do. And then here's what happens, verse 35. It says, immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. He, being Jesus, ordered them, the crowd, to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. Verse 37, they were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And so after this miracle, as always, Jesus commands the people not to say anything, right? Because he doesn't want them to misunderstand what he is coming to do before his death and his resurrection. So he desires silence. But yet, as always, the people cannot do that. I mean, and how, you, like if you're in that situation, of course you can't. How can you not tell people what this man, Jesus, what this, non-gent- or this non-Gentile like them, this Jew who is different than them, has come to do for you? <laughs> and so they tell them. Now, here's also why this is significant for us. 
The Gospel of Mark, its original audience, were to Christians in Rome. That is largely Gentile, a non-Jewish audience. And so passages like this, when Jesus goes out of his way to heal people who are not like them, who are not like the Jews, but are like the people that are reading about Jesus' gospel in Mark, that these stories would have been a great encouragement to them. That it's not just, you know, in word that Jesus cares, but indeed that he explicitly shows it that he came. That yes, his fulfillment was to fulfill all of the Hebrew scriptures, but not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. And so again, Mark is showing us that Jesus' grace is open to all. Now, again, for us, in our cultural moment, in our context, the Jew-Gentile divide is different. So if you're an ancient Gentile, uh, you would assume that you don't deserve the grace of God because in this context, again, everybody, every tribe, every ethnicity has their own God or gods, and their own God or gods only care about them. Of course, they don't care about people that are not them or not part of their tribe or don't live in their geographical area. So this is very uh, unique and extreme that the God of the Jews does not care just for the Jews, but he cares for all of them. So if you're an ancient Gentile, you would assume that you don't deserve the grace and mercy of God, not necessarily because you're not perfect, but simply because you're not a Jew. So why would he care for you? And in our context today, our Jew-Gentile divide is not necessarily based on ethnicity. It seems to be based on our worth. That if God is righteous and caring and perfect, and we know that we are not, well, then we also don't deserve his grace and forgiveness. Because have you heard and do you know the things that I have done? This is what we think, right? God might love other people, but he certainly can't love me because I don't deserve deserve it. In this context, I would not be a Jew, if you will. Certainly he doesn't love me. And so when I read passages like this, all I can do is think of this quote we share time to time because it's a favorite of mine by Tim Keller, who is a pastor and author. He says it this way. He says that you are more loved, or sorry, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. And you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. See, this is the gospel, that whatever issues or reasons that you think disqualify you from God's love, that's true. They do. All of our brokenness, our sin, our going our own way, our dishonoring God and our actions absolutely disqualify us from earning and deserving God's love. But yet, what do we read in Mark? The God who does everything well came for you and for me anyway. That you are broken, that you do fall short, that you do not have it all together. But yet, the gospel says that you are more loved and accepted than you could ever know. But the good news of the gospel is that God came in the form of a man named Jesus to do for you and for me, for the Jew, for the Gentile, what we could not do for ourselves. That he perfectly upheld all of the laws because we couldn't do it ourselves out of redemption and love to invite us into his kingdom. Not because he needs us, not because we can somehow add something that was deficient without us, but simply out of his love, he came to heal, to invite, and to redeem. So that one day, as it says in Isaiah 35, when we are in God's kingdom, the sorrow and sighing will flee and we will sing with joy because of what the Lord has done for us. It kind of reminds me, though, here's the last thing I'll read in Romans chapter 8. It'll be on the screen starting in verse 31. Romans chapter 8 is the Apostle Paul writing about Jesus and his sacrifice and the spirit that God gives us freely, not because we deserved it, but out of his grace towards us. And then this is, this is his response to the grace and mercy of God. He says this, verse 31, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. Not just the Jews, not just the people who deserve it, not just the people who act a certain way, but for us all. 
How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? If God himself loves you and redeems you, who is anyone else to say you don't deserve it? Who can bring a, 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 an accusation against God elect? God is the one who justifies. Verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also at the right hand of God intercedes for us that actively through the power of the spirit, God through Jesus is saying that is my son and that is my daughter. Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. He's just referencing a passage from Psalm saying that sometimes followers of, of God will be persecuted or difficult things will happen to them, but God still loves you. And here's how we know. Verse 37, no, in all these things, whatever happens to us, we are more than conquerors through him. Who loved us, not through us and what we have done, but through him. Verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor poverty, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That anyone who is in Christ gets to experience these things not because of you, because of him. Or put another way, here is what Mark is emphatically showing us and what Paul even tells us in, in, in Romans chapter 8. And that is that no one is beyond the love of God. In this text, in Mark chapter 7 that we read this morning, Jesus helped and healed the bad people, right? If you're an ancient Jew, you would be like, why would he help them? That he helps the people that we would say don't deserve it. And I know one of the common objections to, you know, God's grace and love is like, yes, that's great for other people, but you don't know what I've done. And my response to that is always this, who are you, who am I to tell God what he can and cannot do? If God says, I love you, if God says, I came for you, if God says redemption is found in me that everyone is invited to partake of, who are you to tell him that he can't do that for you? Mark is showing us that Jew or Gentile, or in our context, your gender, how much money you make, what you've done, where you live, your Instagram follow, none of these things can separate you from the love of God. And so he's inviting us in. That all we have to do is in humility, in humility, be honest about our brokenness, desire his need and forgiveness, and he gladly gives it to us. So again, whatever you walked in here with today, whatever you're struggling with, just, remind, just be reminded, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, God loves you. He's not asking you to prove your worth back to him before he gives you his grace. He gives it to you now. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to know that God loves you. He's not asking you to prove it to him for him to give you his grace. He wants to give it to you now.